listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Let's look at Daniel 5 today. We're studying the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel in the first half, the first six chapters, has... Six really exciting stories, a couple of strange visions that we can wade through. Chapter 7 through 12 is a whole lot of visions and a whole lot of beasts and animals and trying to figure out. If Really, if it were up to me, I'd preach Daniel 1 to 7, then we'd move on, Charlie. I'd just get out of Daniel because I don't want to have to fool with trying to figure out what in the world it is Daniel saw and how that's supposed to be relevant to us. But you know what? It is relevant to us. God's Word is always relevant to mankind, no matter what time, no matter what nation they're from, or or where they're at in the time of God's redemptive history, it's relevant. And so we're going to wade through it. We're going to get in the weeds really deep. But that doesn't come till about chapter number 7, chapter number 8. Right now in chapter number 5. And last week we saw in chapter 4 where God pronounced a judgment on the king of Babylon, whose name is, do you remember who's the king at the time last week? It was Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. God made a pronouncement of judgment on King Nebuchadnezzar. God said, King, you are lifted up with pride. You are lifted up in arrogance, thinking that somehow the authority and the reign and the kingdom in which you enjoy, for some reason you think that that is on the back of your efforts, on the back of your abilities, on on the back of what you bring to the table. But, oh, King, I, I need to remind you again That everything you enjoy and all the power and sovereignty that you think you have comes from me. I raise up kings and I bring them down. In fact, I set in place kings of the lowest of humanity. Don't think that somehow you have arrived because you're the king. No, I put fools on the throne. And I use them however I will. And when I'm done... Well, I just move them out of the way and bring along another. So, King, here's what I want you to do. I want you to recognize who I am, and I want you to submit yourself to me. And Daniel, interpreting the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, said, King, if you'll just submit now, maybe God will hold back his judgment. But we saw that the king, in fact, did not humble himself. And so at the appropriate time, 12 months later, God brought individual judgment on King Nebuchadnezzar, lost his mind, lost his ability to control himself. He he became like an animal living outside and eating grass, hair, and nails growing and being uncontrollable for what the Scripture says was a period of seven periods of time. At least seven years, and we're not exactly sure what the sevens were, but he became as a a crazy man. When the time of God's judging him was, was coming to a close, God gave him the opportunity, another chance, if you will, to submit. Nebuchadnezzar, are you ready to submit to me? And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar looked into the heavens and said, There is only one sovereign, and it's not me. It's the 
the God Most High. The Most High God is the only one in control, and He controls the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. I submit, Uncle, mercy, God, I get it. And immediately, God restored His reason, God restored His mind, and God brought Him back to the throne you say, Pastor Kevin, did, did Nebuchadnezzar get saved? Was he accepting the one God as the only God? Did he renounce his pagan gods? I don't know. I really would love to think that one day when, when I stand with all of the other redeemed in glory, that I would be able to see across the way King Nebuchadnezzar. I would love to be able to see that he truly received redemption because of his faith in only one God. But I don't know. But I do know in that time, he submitted enough for God to allow him to be returned to his place of ruling. And he stayed there on the throne until the year 562 B.C. In 562 B.C., Daniel would have been in his early to mid-80s. You remember he had came to, to uh, Babylon as a captive, an exile, brought by Nebuchadnezzar to this place of exile, and there he's been for close to 66 years. Daniel's an old man when we get to chapter number 5. In fact, approximately 23 plus years has transpired between the, 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 the things that happened in chapter 4 and those that will happen in chapter 5, because we see in the first two words of chapter 5, there's another name listed as king. Nebuchadnezzar died 562. In around the year 556, so just about six to seven years later, after a period of, of, of wrestling over who is going to be the next king of Babylon, a gentleman by the name of Nabonidus ascended to the throne in 556 B.C. Nabonidus, probably not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, but it's certain, well, I say certain, it's, it's most think that he probably married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters in order to solidify his rule in the line of Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus and his wife had a son whose name was Belshazzar. And you say, that sounds like Daniel's name. Daniel's name was Belteshazzar. This particular individual listed in chapter 5 is called Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the son of Nabonidus, began to rule in his father's place in around the year 549 B.C. Nabonidus was king for 17 years. After seven years, Nabonidus decided to take a long vacation. He left the city of Babylon and he traveled to a city called Tiamat. Tiamat, thank you sir, I appreciate that. Tiamat is located in the northwest region of Arabia. So in your mind, you're thinking about where are all these places. So Babylon would be in what we would call today modern day Iran, Iraq in that region. And then Tiamat would have been a, a city that was, uh, it was owned by the Babylonians and it was in Saudi Arabia. To the southwest of Babylon is where King Nabonidus went to just relocate his office. 
And while he was gone, he looks at his son, Belshazzar, and says, I'm leaving the city of Babylon to you. Treat it well. Everybody pay attention to what he says. If I have anything important, I'll send word to him. Otherwise, follow his lead in my absence. When you look at the ancient documents, King Belshazzar is a hard name to find because the people didn't really see him as king. They just saw him as the king's son who was in charge while the king was away. But it would have been very common for the writer of Daniel, who we believe to be Daniel himself, to refer to him as king because he was ruling in the city. It's going to become important why we see that. Verse number one, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. It would have been very common in that area for the Babylonians and the Persians, the, 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 the leading clans and armies of Mesopotamia, to throw these elaborate feasts. I was reading that, that one particular feast was held for over 69,000 people. Can you imagine how much food would have to be provided, how much alcohol would have to be made in order to satisfy nearly 70,000 people? It was a normal thing for them to have these feasts, and it didn't even have to be a holiday time. What were they celebrating? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting what they were celebrating. They were actually celebrating the fact that they were secure in their city while the enemy armies were besieging their city. You're like, wait a minute, that seems like a time to be preparing for war. Well, that wasn't their attitude. Here's why. The city of Babylon was about 14 miles wide, similar mileage to the, to the, the north to south, and, and they were situated on the Euphrates River. Now, when I say on it, I don't mean like Dallas was built on the Red River, meaning close access to it. No, no. I'm talking about the, the city of Babylon is built on top of the Euphrates River, river running through the city, providing the, the water that was needed, the irrigation, that they could grow foods and they could have all of the, 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 the product that they needed to survive. Their walls were thick enough, one writer has said, for a four-horse chariot to be able to race around the top of the wall and turn around and go the next way. I would figure that it would need as much room as at least my Ford pickup that takes a mile to turn around, right? And so this wall was so thick, this place was so quote-unquote secure, and they had the river, and they had their crops inside the city. One writer said that they had enough provisions laid up for years. Now, what's happening on the outside of the city, as I understand it, the Medes and the Persians, who were a growing army similar to Babylon, was beginning to take over those, those little smaller areas around them and were making their way in order to conquer everyone just like Nebuchadnezzar had done. And the Medes and the Persians had, had conquered everything around Babylon 
And now we're just sitting outside waiting on the battle to happen. Inside, Belshazzar had this thought. We can last for years. You couldn't bring enough food with you. You couldn't bring enough morale with you to last years. We're just going to huddle up inside the city and we're going to wait you out. You think you're waiting us out? You don't know how many beans we got in here. We can stay in here what seems like forever. And then when you get tired and you start going to the house, we'll come charging out and get you from behind. They felt, quote unquote, secure in the city and so as secure as we are let's just throw a party and so Belshazzar gathered a a thousand of his lords and threw a party of great splendor certainly this party was full of debauchery and immorality You can imagine what kind of party must have been going on when no matter what you want to do is perfectly okay because you are in charge. I won't speak to how grim this party was, but your imagination could probably discover just what was going on here. It says in verse number two, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, which probably means more like when the wine was starting to become one with him. When he was becoming uh, moved by the wine. He had an idea. He commanded, verse number two, that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought so that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. What is he saying? We're so, quote-unquote, secure. Our gods are so showing favor on us. Let's raise this party up a minute. I know about some vessels that came out of a temple of one of the conquered people that, that, that our forefathers conquered, and I know they've been sitting in storage. Somebody go find those vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and bring them in here so that we can pour wine in them and drink from them and celebrate the true gods of security, the true gods of Babylon. Bring those things in here so that we can make sport. You know, when, when the wine starts getting tasted, you do dumb stuff, don't you? You say, no, Pastor Kevin, I don't drink wine. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You do dumb things. He's doing dumb things. He's doing blasphemous things. Because it says, verse number three, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The king, his lords, and his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And look at verse four. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Daniel, writing this story for us, makes it clear. They didn't withhold their praise from any of the gods. Certainly the ones of gold, of the highest praise. They used the vessels that were set aside for the worship of the one true God, and they praised all the pantheon of false gods. Everybody down to the wooden ones, to the stone idols we worshiped with the tools set aside for worship of the Creator the one and only. Verse number five, immediately. 
when the party was at its height, immediately notice what happens. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. You say, what's going on here? No, what you're reading is going on. When the party was at its fever, a hand appeared, detached, and began to write with its finger on the plaster. How many, how many of you grew up watching the Adams Family on TV? That's where my mind goes, right? It's, it's that little hand that runs across, you know? The thing, that's what it was called. It's supposed to be spooky because it lives in the Adams Family house, right? Listen, this thing was every bit, if not way more spooky than anything you watched in the 1960s television. This detached hand that came from nowhere, writing without an instrument on plaster, without ink, without anything other than the power of the finger writing on the wall. Look at this. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. I mean, the blood just ran from his face. He went pale. As he's seeing this thing, and, 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 you know, a lot of folks that like these horror movies, and it's, I don't get it, I don't like them, okay? But, you know, loving to be shocked and spooked. I have seen the memes and, and the little videos on social media where, you know, you flip on the light, nothing there. You flip off the light, you flip it back on, and there's somebody standing behind you. Ah, you know, that's the kind of thing that the king is seeing. What is going on? And the blood rushed from his face, his color changed, his Thoughts alarmed him. You know when you've been scared and your mind just starts racing and reeling and and, and you're just like, i got to breathe. i got to do something. What what am I going to do? It says here, his limbs gave away. Well, it sounds like that he just was falling down. You know know what I found interesting? One of the guys that I read behind, he took that phrase apart and he says, you know, that little phrase, his limbs gave away, also is often used, his bowels gave away. I think that's a little bit more descriptive. Probably a little bit more realistic. And his knees not to get, you ever been that scared that you've just been like, you're, sh- you're shaking. You know, something happened to you or one of your kids and it just, it disturbs you so much that you just, you, 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 gotta, you gotta sit down because you're just shaking. And it's just like, oh, that's what the king was experiencing. Verse number seven, the king called loudly. You know what that means? That means he screamed He screamed, and he screamed, and he screamed, and he screamed, and he screamed. And I'm not going to do it for you. You thought I was going to get up there. What was he screaming? Help! Somebody find the enchanters and the the magicians and the, and the, and the, the wise men. Bring them in here. What is going on? And he's going nuts. The king is. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing, whatever this is, whoever can read this, show me its interpretation and you'll be clothed with purple, 
You'll have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third ruler? Because daddy's the king and he's the second. You'd be right behind him. That's all the authority he had. He couldn't make you the second because he's the second. You could be the third. Come in. So who did he call? He basically called the same crowd that couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream either time. These people are used. They're like the stormtroopers from the Star Wars saga. You know, they got guns. They just can't hit nothing with them. You know, they are of no worry to anyone. These guys are useless. They call them in. And they come shuffling and bumbling. And there we are. Looking at the wall. I don't know if the hand was still there or not. They're looking at the wall. They're seeing what the king is seeing. They're recognizing that he has lost it. He is so disturbed and they understand why. And they look at what they see and they go, Yeah, I got nothing, king. I have any idea what this means. I I could probably tell you what the words look like, but I don't know what they mean. King King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. Again, color changed, and his lords were were perplexed. We were partying on our security, and now the party has come to an abrupt end. We're trying to figure out what in the world has just. Am I seeing it? Just by my. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? We got to find this out. Verse ten. The queen. Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banquet hall and the queen declared. Now, again, the queen is probably his mama because the king is down in Tiamat, but the queen mother's probably not Belshazzar's wife, but his mama, she just walks right on in. You know, in this time, you couldn't just walk in on a king. You had to be summoned. Well, mama does what mama wants to, right? Because mama just come on in. Most Bible scholars believe this is the queen mother. She comes on in. She's like, what is all the commotion about in here? What is all the screaming? What is all the hurry? Why are you in such a turmoil, son? Let not, she says, your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit, the holy gods. If she is indeed the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, she's heard all about this guy. Because I know, daddy told his family all about what he had seen and heard and experienced. In the days of your father, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your grandfather, but that's not a big deal. This is not inaccurate. Your father, the king, grandfather, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and to solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar, just so you'll know who to ask for. Now let Daniel be called in and he'll be able to show you what's going on. Why why was Daniel not in his position anymore? Well, he was in his 80s for one thing. Maybe he had been given a nice retirement. Or maybe when Nabonidus came on board, he said, yeah, I don't need you anymore. 
I, I, don't, I, don't know why, I don't know why your, your daddy had him in there in the first place. He got to go. I don't need him. But Daniel's still around. Daniel was still ready. Daniel was still prepared to do what God had gifted him to do. So mama says, you should bring Daniel. He'll tell us what the message means. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Daniel knew that. What's he doing? I think he's kind of condescending on him. I think he's kind of saying, you know, I know who you are. I've heard about you. You're, the, you're one of those exiles. You're one of those people that we conquered. You're one of those people that were brought here against you. You're one of us now because we said so. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. I'm imagining Daniel going, uh-huh. Yeah, we, we run into that a lot. They're, they're not really worth what they earn. But at any rate, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can, it reminds me of a time that someone looked at Jesus. Jesus asked this one if, if he would like to experience a, a, a healing or if, if he was asking for him to, I think it was healing of his daughter. And, and the man said, if you can. And Jesus was like, if I can. Well, yeah, you don't think I can? Well, that's kind of what Belshazzar's doing. Like, if you, if you can, and I'm imagining Daniel going, I can't do nothing, but my God sure can. My God's hat, got a can beside his name, and he always can. He always going to be able to. Whatever he needs to do, he can. If I can, I can't, but he can. If you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. And if you do, you'll be clothed with purple, you'll have a chain of gold around your neck, and you should be a third ruler in the kingdom. There's something in it for you, Daniel. Just tell me what it says. That's all I need to know, and there's plenty for you. I love what Daniel responds. Daniel responds back and said before the king, uh, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Basically, Daniel's like, yeah, I don't, I don't need your presence. I, I, I don't, I've done been up there ruling over. I, that's, that's, and, and not only that, when I look up here, I, I'm going to say what God says. I'm not going to say what I think is going to get me more of your stuff. So, so you don't need to reward me. You, you don't need to give me any kind of honor. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king. And make known to him the interpretation. Because Daniel knew it? Nope. Because God would reveal it. Maybe God already has revealed it. But Daniel knew what his purpose was. And it was to tell whatever God said to him. And he was prepared to do it. Verse 18. O king, let me give you a history lesson real quick before I tell you what the words say on the wall. O king, the most high God, the God I serve... The God that is the creator. He gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, well, then all the peoples, the nations, the languages, they all trembled and feared before Nebuchadnezzar. 
because of what God had given him. They feared before him. Why? Because, well, he could kill whom he wanted. He could, uh, whom he, he would, he'd keep alive. Whom he would, he'd raise up. Whom he would, he'd humble. But when his heart, your granddaddy, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, well, your granddaddy was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. The same God who gave it to him brought him down and took it from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind. You see, Belshazzar, your granddaddy was lifted up in pride over all that God Most High had given him. And so God brought him down to the bottom. And he let him stay on the bottom until he was ready to humbly submit that the God Most High is the authority and he rules everything and everybody. And he sets over it the kingdom of mankind whom he will. I need you to understand before I tell you what's on the wall, Belshazzar, that's the God you're dealing with, the God that has all authority. In my mind, I'm imagining Belshazzar going, yeah, 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 I get it, I hear you, whatever, whatever. Just tell me what's on the wall. Ah, yeah, yeah, I hear that, God most high, never gonna, I've heard all those stories. Yeah, 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 I know that. Just tell me what's on the wall. Verse 22. Okay. And you, his son, Belshazzar, well, you have not humbled your heart. Your granddaddy did, but you have not. Though you knew all of this that I recounted, you haven't humbled your heart. You're not humbling it right now. You just want to know what the words are. You have no concern whatsoever about the God you've been made aware of. And about the works of his hands that you know full well. But you've lifted yourself up, verse 23, against yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of of his house you've brought in before you. You and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. King Belshazzar, you've worshipped everyone but the God who holds your little life in the palm of his hand. You've ignored him and you've lifted yourself above him. Verse 24, so then from his presence, the hand was sent. The statement was ready to be written and sealed. Well, now it's being delivered. He sent, and this writing was inscribed. 
And this is the writing that is inscribed. Look there, O king. It gets a little tricky about how these words were written and why there was confusion, but I'll try to be brief. Most believe that these were words written in Aramaic. This scripture is written in Aramaic, translated into the languages throughout history. Most believe that the words were written in Aramaic, but that they were words of randomness. Kind of like a riddle when you hear a riddle and you hear it spelled out and you're like, how am I supposed to get anything out of that? Well, you can't unless you know the intent of the one who created the riddle. And so these four words, three unique words, one written twice, would have been random to the sorcerers and the enchanters and the astrologers. We could say, I think we know what these words are. We're not exactly sure, but we do know that they're random. They don't mean anything. Daniel was prepared to say, you see the words, they would have read right to left, not left to right like we do. But here are the words, Daniel said, you see them before you, king. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. The king's like, okay, what does that mean? If you take these words in Aramaic and you bring them over to a familiar language, a similar language of Hebrew, they are words that would be uh, mina, shekel, and parson is a word. In the Hebrew, mina would have meant to count. Shekel would have meant to weigh. And parson would have been the word for a half shekel or a divided amount. You're like, okay, number weighed, number, number weighed, divided. What in the world does that mean? And that's where God revealing the message to Daniel says to the king, this is what it means. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. And he has brought it to an end. This is not the final notice This is your notice of cancellation. God God knew the days you were going to rule, and God has finished the days that you will rule. It ends. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balance. You, Belshazzar. You, the one who's sitting on the throne. You, the one who is throwing the party. You who've known all about the God Most High. You have been weighed in the balance. Bing. And you have found, been found unacceptable. I don't think that this means that his deeds, whether good or bad, that's where our mind likes to go. Had he done more good deeds than bad deeds? Never about deeds. It's never about works. But I believe what God is saying is, I've weighed you in the balance of your submission to me, and you have said no. And that's just not acceptable. Your days are over, king. You've been found wanting in the balance. Perez, your kingdom will be and has been divided between two. 
and they're right outside the door. The Medes and the Persians have been camped out there, and what you don't realize is that they've been strategizing. They've been doing things that you've not paid any attention to because of how secure you are in your mind. But God has already given the Babylonian kingdom, your kingdom, he's already given it to those guys. The head of gold and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that moved to the shoulders and arms of silver is taking place at this hour. Your kingdom is divided, given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold that was put around his neck, and he was proclaimed to be, uh, a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. And I imagine Daniel just stood there as people were cheering, as he put the robe on and the, the gold and Because Daniel knew, I'm not going to be wearing this very long. I mean, this is a temporary outfit at best. I mean, I ain't going to have time to shake all y'all's hands. Because God's already signed, sealed, and delivered his judgment. Because then he says, verse number 30, that very night, or in southern, just like that. And just like that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. We're going to learn a little bit more about Darius in the weeks to come. Probably not a king of the Persians. Cyrus would have been the king of the Persians. Darius would have been a a very high, high high-ranking general that took the city. I know you're wondering, Pastor Kevin, how did they take the city? How, How did it happen? Well, you know God's in the business of just walking around cities, screaming and hollering, and the walls came down. But he did it a little different this way. You see, while everybody was inside Babylon partying, what what Darius did was recognize that there's no way into the city. And there's, there's no way for us even to go under the, the wall where the river is because all they've got to do is just wait a second. We'll drown in the river. What could we do? So they spent their time slowly but surely diverting the river to a local lake so that the water unbeknownst to the Babylonians was just receding and receding. Still flowing. Still providing water, still providing what they needed, but just a little bit at a time. A little more, a little more, a little more. Yeah, Darius, I think we could get through that, man. I think we could hold our nose up above the water. We could get, I can see it light on the other side, and it's dark. They don't even see us out here. Y'all ready to go? Let's go get them. And in the cover of night, while we're partying, handwriting, interpretation being given, okay, thanks, Daniel, I appreciate that. Into the city flowed the enemy under the hand and, and, and prophecy of the same God who put Babylon in control and the Medes and the Persians infiltrated and changed the image from the golden head 
to the silver shoulders and arms, just exactly what God said he would do. That night, they fell fearfully into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter number 10, verse 31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into God's, and that's exactly where they fell. I want to give you some takeaways. Some things that you can look at this like, Pastor what, what are we supposed to do with that? I, I, I think I got some things you could, you, could, you could hang a little bit of thought on, if you will. Number one, it's not in your notes if you're following notes. Here's it is. The party in the kingdoms of man are always raging. The party's happening somewhere in the kingdom of heaven. But you know what we know? We know that the judgment of God looms on the horizon. How far is that? Don't know. But I know what God has said, and it is there. And we are partying, saying, security, security, not knowing that what is coming is God's promised judgment. Number two, every human kingdom will fall including the one that you live in. Every human kingdom will fall. Fools hitch their hope to the kingdoms of man. Even the good ones. Even the ones that are trying to do the right thing based on what they consider the right thing. You're a fool to hitch your wagon to any kingdom of mankind. You know why? Because they're all going down. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Kingdoms of men throughout history. And what ultimately happens? The stone, which is Christ, comes and crushes all the kingdoms. And then God's kingdom is established. If you know Jesus as your Savior, that's where your citizenship resides. Don't hook your wagon to a kingdom of man. It's going down. Every last one of them. Number three. God's Word must be proclaimed no matter how unpopular the message is. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you've got to preach the Word. Teach the truth. Be ready when it's in season. Be ready when it's out of season. You've got to reprove, rebuke, exhort. You know why? Because in the latter days, folks won't tolerate the truth. They'll go find someone who's teaching a message that suits their own ears, that, that tantalizes their own desires so they can be what they want to be and have the false assurance that God's on their side. That's who folks are going to be listening to. That's what they're going to want to hear. But we've got to have some folks who stand on truth. God's Word is truth. We've got to be prepared to stand on it, even when it's unpopular. And you know what? It's always unpopular. Number four, the honors that you will ever receive from this world are temporary at best. So don't strive for things in this world that will get you attention, that will get you set apart, that will get you fame, glory, or whatever it is you might think you want because it's not going to last very long. What we should be doing 
is focusing on what kingdom we're a part of if you know Jesus as your Savior. And then lastly, number five. Everyone, we learn from this little lesson here, everyone is accountable for their own heart's response to God's grace. Everyone. Everyone is responsible to whether they humbly submit to the God Most High. And when they humbly submit to the God Most High, then they're on the way to redemption if they will put their faith and trust in God the Son, Jesus, who died in their place and for their sin and rose from the dead to give them new life. When we humbly submit, when we receive Christ by faith, we can walk in the way of redemption. But everyone who refuses, everyone who arrogantly rejects the grace and word of God will also be accountable. And that will lead to destruction. Not just the destruction of your life on earth, but eternal destruction. That ain't a popular message. Eternity separated from God. Please, Pastor Kevin, don't say the word hell. We don't like that. I know. I don't either. I don't like that word. I don't like the thoughts of being separated and, and in a place not designed for me, but suffering because I just simply rejected the God Most High. But no matter how I try to massage this book right here, I never come out with any other conclusion. And that is the redeemed spend eternity with their Savior and those that reject spend eternity separated from Him. We're accountable for that. We're responsible for our decision to receive Him or not. 2 Timothy, again, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. When He returns, it won't be as a babe in the manger. It will be as the King Supreme of the kingdom that is His. And His judgment will be meted out according to His holiness and righteousness. But we can walk in His grace, mercy, and love right now if we'll submit. Those are the takeaways. That's what you can see, I believe. That's how you can see the Lord Jesus in the movings of what we see right here in Daniel chapter number 6. But I want to take you to a passage and I want to give you some instructions. Because I think we've got a job to do. And I'm not going to preach this passage. I just want to read it. And I want to pull out some instructions that are already preset for us. Can we do that? Can we blow through a, a New Testament passage and just let it say what it says? Turn with me. First Thessalonians chapter number 5 if you've got your Bibles. Paul writing to some folks that are wondering, when is Jesus coming back? When is this day of the Lord that we're expecting? That judgment that's on the horizon, brother, has it already happened? Are we to expect it? What's going to happen when it comes about? How are we to prepare? How are we to think as followers of Jesus knowing that God's judgment is imminent? And he tells them, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. You yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while we're partying and the conquering army infiltrates the city unbeknownst to those who think security, security. 
The day of the Lord will come in the thief of the night while people are saying, there's peace, there's security, and sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they'll not escape. Any of you ladies have that happen? You know, where he's like, okay, it's time. You know, all right, there, wait, there, wait. I knew it was coming. I didn't know when. Now I know when, but now it's now, and we got to go. Get the bag, get the car, we got to go. That's how it's coming. Immediately, just like that. But then he says to us, and I probably should have asked you this beforehand. Are you a follower of Jesus by faith? Yeah, me too. If you're not, I hope you recognize your need to humbly submit and and know that the invitation is open, that God wants to save you, and he's made the way straight for you to just receive. But if you are a follower of Jesus, look what he says. You're not in darkness, brothers. That's That's not where we're at. We're, we're, we're not shuddering. We're not scared. We're, we're, we're not wondering about, and, and we're not going to be taken by surprise. Why? For that day, we'll surprise. Uh, for, we're, let me back up. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness. So then, because we know it's coming, because we know He's coming. You know, when He's coming, He's not coming to battle us. He's coming for us. Amen? We're we're His people. He's coming back as our King, the one we're waiting on, the one we're trudging through the darkness thinking, when is it going to be morning? When it's morning, it's going to show up, and we're going to be going, hallelujah, He's here. So what do we do? What do we do right now? Here's the instructions, and we're going to hit them right here. So then, number one, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Christian, you know what we're supposed to do right now in the here? We're to remain awake. We're to remain alert. We're to stay focused. We're to stay engaged. We're to stay fixed on our Savior. We got a job to do. We're representing Him. We're living out the fruit that He's producing in us through the Holy Spirit that's giving us the fuel. We just simply hang in there doing what He left us to do, keeping our eyes open, keeping our face turned toward Him. You just keep walking, Chris. Don't you worry about all that other stuff. You're not of the darkness. You're of the King. Keep looking for Him. Keep engaged. For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk, get drunk at the night. But, number two, since we belong to the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He says, here's what you do. Stay awake, stay alert, and I want you to live daily by faith, not by sight. You look around you at what you're seeing, it'll confuse you, it'll scare you, it'll cause you to trip up. You don't walk by sight, you walk by faith. Faith in what? Faith not in what? Faith in who? Faith in the one who has saved you and made a promise to you and he's going to fulfill it. And when he gets here, it's going to be fulfilled. So you put on that breastplate, that armor, and you're like, I ain't worried about the darts. I'm not worried about the swords. I got faith in the one who saved me. But don't forget, we also put on love. We got to put on love because we got a duty to one another too. 
And that needs to be fueled by love. And we're putting our hope not in the 401k, not in the next president or, or the next whatever. We're putting our hope in the salvation that is ours, in the kingdom that we belong, in whose citizenship our name is written. And we just keep walking one foot in front of the other, locked arms with each other, encouraging and bringing one another along. That's what he says. And the next, he says, For God's not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And then last, already let the cat out of that bag. Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. What do we do? We... We come pick one another up when we're down. We come lift their faces when they're hurt. We say, hey, it ain't about this. It's never been about this. By Him. It's about the job He's given us to do. And we live that by faith. We live that with love. We have hope. And we got each other. Let's keep charging till Christ returns. And hopefully a passage that would cause most to go oh boy, would cause us to say, hot dog. There ain't nothing they can do to us. They can kill you, Pastor Kevin. They can't, they can't keep me from being raised from the dead. Well, yeah, but they can hurt you. They can't hurt me and compared to the way God's going to bless me eternally for getting a little hurt right now. So you know what we do? We strap on that breastplate. We snap down that helmet. We keep our eyes on Him and we charge ahead with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him. The stone is going to establish God's kingdom. And He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our King. Let's move forward. Amen? If you don't know Him as your Savior... Call on him today. It's a whole lot better on this side. Pray with us, if you will. Father, we thank you so much for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. God, when we read this passage out of Daniel, it should cause the reader to shudder. In fear of the judgment of a holy God. Because that judgment is real. That, that judgment is signed. That judgment's going to happen. But as followers of Jesus, we cannot fear. We can live in confidence of our King. We can live in confidence knowing that, that we represent Him. And when He returns, He's returning for us. Christian, be encouraged. Plant your flag a little deeper to stay fixed, to stay focused, to encourage one another. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there are no other options. But the only option has been made available to you if you'll just receive Him. If in your heart you'll just submit and humble yourself. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself, but I believe that God the Son, Jesus, died in my place for my sin. And that you raised him from the dead specifically for the purpose 
of providing salvation that I so desperately need. If that's your heart, you can come to know Christ simply by faith. You can be part of the family, part of the kingdom. You can be part of the waiting for the king. If that's you, don't, don't leave before you let us know. So, Father, we look forward to what you're going to do this week in the lives of your children that have now been called to charge with confidence in who you are, in our calling to lay aside every weight, the sin that besets us, that we'll run the race set before us until the king returns. And then he'll call us to stop running, and we'll just stand in his presence. Give us courage. God, give us the freedom from the distractions of this world. Use us in whatever way you see fit so that you might be glorified in our lives. We love you. We thank you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said.